the Deep Democracy Podcast. I'm Winelia Rivera. And I'm Gina Cristo. On this podcast, we look at what's happening in both local and national politics from a different perspective, what we call deep democracy, the belief that those at the margins should be at the center, and that including all voices gives us a more complete view of the system. We look at everything from gerrymandering to abortion, immigration to climate change through that lens, which means that what you hear on the show is going to be a little different than what you hear on most political shows. Or a lot different. We hope you enjoy it, and we hope to hear from you too. Now, let's get to today's show. Hi, Lanelia. Hey, Miss G. How Hi. are you? I'm good. How are you? I am good, good, good. It has been one hell of a week. Oh, my God. Everything's it always is, on fire. honestly. But the heat is up right now. Oh, I mean, I think the candle's burning. It's, I don't know if it's a candle anymore, though. No, it's like an oven and it's, it's on broil. It's a fire pit. Oh, fire Una lechonera. Pit. Yeah. Sorry, it's a very Puerto Rican moment no, there. I um, receive it. But yeah, girl, it's a dumpster fire. Apparently, <laughs> um, we no longer have a functioning uh, mm -hmm. uh, U.S. federal government. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Our system of checks and balances are no more. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The procurement system of the federal government is a lie. Mm -hmm. um, we are continuing to take money from the Puerto Rico recovery so that Trump can do whatever he wants. Yeah. So here we are. Well, I'm happy to be here with you. I'm happy to be here with you too. Oh my God, that debate. Let's talk about it. Mm. That debate. Three hours and two whiskeys and it was a lot. Girl, all I gotta say... New York Times really should not be putting together any no. more debates. No. I mean, it's as bad as their paper at this I point. Know. I mean, they basically just asked questions that were the the that were basically all the headlines of the last seven days. I know. I'm like And it's just this you know, and really, really, we shouldn't just pin it on the New York Times because really all these debates just continue to be this like bullshit question asking that is just like basically right wing talking points. You know, but the thing is I felt like some of the earlier debates mm. when there was like two stages, mm -hmm. I felt like they oh. were trying to like be affirmative action type and like actually selecting like journalists that usually don't get an opportunity yeah. to like do these debates yeah. and I love those folks yeah. because they, what I what I think we need and I think what the American people need is actually like ask questions based on people's actual records yeah. so if you're going to ask about foreign po if you're going to ask about the mandatory um, buy buybacks, buybacks right? mm -hmm. if we're going to call if we're going to talk about that mm -hmm. Shouldn't we like raise Mayor Pete's like record on those issues locally? That's then ask the question mm -hmm. because that gives people an actual real look at who people are. Right. This whole catcha moment, but it's not even real catcha because no, like not, they no. don't preface it on failures or on successes. Even like it's just this blanketed question, and maybe it's so everybody can like take their standard answer to it. But it's just it was really like. It was boring, man. Well, it's boring, and what's clear is that there's a consensus on either side. I don't care who, you know, who, who what you guys think, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> that being a lefty is bad. Being yeah. a socialist is bad. Yeah. Like, as if we even know what that even means in this country. Right. Right? So, like, at the end of the day, I think that that's the consensus that I'm seeing from, from this debate stage. Yeah. That, you know, being deemed, you know, someone from the left is an extremist. Right. And both Republicans and, 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 and a lot of Democrats agree. Right. And those are the people that are getting the points. Right. Right? Yeah. It just, it's disgusting to me. Yeah. It's disgusting that, like... We are basically creating a fake enemy mm -hmm. when we actually have some real ones. Right. And it's like you are. A t and here's the thing. Like, so obviously Elizabeth Warren is the front runner because everybody came for her. Um, 
And a lot of the attacks were on Medicare for all. And what's so insane to me is that everyone's like, oh, my God, Pete Buttigieg is, is just the smartest man in America. Right. But then this motherfucker can't Who, like polls at zero percent with black people. with black people. Sorry, maybe one percent with statistical errors, whatever, whatever. He's like, we can't do Medicare for all. How are you going to pay for it? And then she explains it. And he's like, you're not explaining it. It's like you're being intellectually disingenuous because you are the second highest receiver mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of donations from healthcare corporations, second to Donald Trump. Like, I just want everyone to hold that for a second. And continue to hold it because ultimately the kind of messaging and the kind of policy positions that all of these candidates have are right. directly related to the political funding that's behind correct. them. Correct. Correct. That is correct. That is, that is what it comes down to. I know. And at the end of the day, Mayor Pete is a young Biden. That's, who, that's what he's emerging as, as a, as a younger option right. to Biden. Right. But he's gay. So he checks that little white people diversity The box. millennials will care. We not will this care. Millennial. I'm like, not, 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 not this, this millennial. Not this gay either, let me tell you. Yeah. No, I just he was such a fucking prick. Like Pete Buttigieg on that stage reminds me of every progressive white man I've ever worked for who has just mansplained the fuck out of me and actually been wrong. <laughs> like it was honestly exhausting to watch it happen. It, it just and you know, man, I'm not going to lie. I've said it and admitted it on this podcast. I gave that gay man ten dollars because I was excited about it. I told a gay. you to stop I being so I told I you know. to stop being excited about I it. Know. I told you. Listen, it was like seven days of my I know, life. And I said it was a, it's a long road ahead of us. Listen, a long road ahead of us. I'm Reckoning so with my whiteness. The one, the one thing I do really want to bring up in this whole thing around, like whatever Medicare for all, the Green New Deal, all this stuff, right, that, that keeps on coming up. Mm-hmm. The candidate that begins to pivot this conversation in this direction, I think, is really like important to this whole process because mm-hmm. if Democrats think that if they spend the next three, the next hundred days or ninety-nine days, whatever, whenever the Iowa caucus begins, mm-hmm. uh, caucus, excuse me, begins, just arguing amongst each other right. about little plans that at the end of the day don't have that much actual major differences between mm-hmm. them, we're going to lose this race. Mm-hmm. And the reason we're going to lose this race is that we need to spend time the same way that Elizabeth, I believe, has been has been focusing at least with with greed and corruption in terms mm-hmm. of the, the cor- uh, corporate America. We need to talk about the greed and corruption that has taken over our Congress mm-hmm. that doesn't allow us to pass anything. Correct. So while we're having all these great policy conversations and mm-hmm. policy debates about how will we pay for it, how will, Actually, we will do none of it because our Congress doesn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And not, and I don't say that in a pejorative way. I say that because of the the stalemate. It's not pejorative. It's truth. Exactly. It's, it's the, the actual stalemate right. that the that folks like Mitch McConnell right. have done to destroy the U.S. Senate. Yes. Because at this point, what the House has showed us mm-hmm. with a Democratic majority, you can do bipartisanship. There was a bipartisanship bipartisan vote this week on on freaking Turkey and Syria. Oh, well, that's because the the foreign policy is the only spot the Republicans will, like, get their little toe out. They're like, mm. but but it's not enough. Obviously, it's not enough. But I'm just saying yeah. that it doesn't matter what the House does if the Senate's still in, in doesn't play. Do shit. So, no. again, the candidate that decides to stop with, like, dangling plans in our faces. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, continue to have those conversations in closer mm-hmm. and closer and closer rooms when you're talking to voters in live events. Mm-hmm. But in the debate stage, stop it. Mm-hmm. As Democrats, what they need to do is have a broader message of how they're going to rebuild right. civil society because mm-hmm. ours is burnt down to the crisp at this point. Right. It just is. Yeah. And I, I and if I hear anybody talk to me about restoring democracy, no, we got to transform it. Yeah. 
also like sorry that was a rant guys no i received I had three it. points and i went through them all. i received it i was a good friend sorry it no, was no apologies my rant. i held that in all day i know i, I Actually, just been saw the release yes. look at the energy holding it in for months um, sorry no and that kind of gets to my honestly my biggest frustration from the debate was like the Amy Klobuchar's and Cory Booker's of the world who were like there is so much similarity between us and we can get stuff done and I'm like first of all no there isn't that much similarity and so, no, none of you can get anything done. done not in a broken congress and like, so, exactly and so they were like why haven't we you know like we are so close to passing a gun bill but we can't agree on blah 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 and it's like yo you're being so disingenuous because about you're the still, structure of our government you're pretending that we have that a real government right stop doing that because it's not benefiting any of us it's just not and I and that's the thing is that like I understand that campaigning is campaigning sometimes but there was just some platitudes up on that stage and again this is a primary cycle right what de- what what Democrats are showing us is that the, that even after three years of this administration mm-hmm. they still can't get their act together to talk to the American people right because the cult of personality mm-hmm. that we are still committed to mm-hmm. It's going to destroy us. Mm-hmm. And that cult of personality is funded by the people who don't want us to be liberated. No. And, and and that's, I mean, and if anything, let's see what continues to happen, you know, because at the end of the day, it just, it's, you know, I just get really, I'm concerned about the sexist attacks that are just going to become front and center now that, that um, Senator Warren is, the, is a front runner. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that, you know, some pundits are talking about Bernie as if, like, the man, like, actually passed away. Right. I know. It's It was super disrespectful. and I, So disrespectful. So disrespectful. I really thought it was. And, you know, it's so funny, man. Like, I love me some Bernie Sanders now. And if you, I had said that in 2016, I would have, like, been in a fight with myself. But I couldn't believe they asked him that. And I just think that, like, you know, but also at the same time, when Hillary like passed out a little bit in 2016, it was like full frontal news. And I do think that there has been some like uneven coverage that is gendered there, mm. just oh, comparatively. Yeah. Yeah, no, but no, also, I it's agree. not a fucking debate stage question. And stop giving, stop giving the Republican Party a video to post on Twitter. They'll do it anyway. But like, stop really teeing it up. Make them work for it. You know? Yeah, no, it just doesn't make any. It doesn't make any sense to me. You no. know? And I think well, the other one of the other things I want to I want to bring up that caused such a freaking Twitter uproar not that Twitter's real life but you know I love it um, <laughs> so Kamala and Elizabeth Warren on Big Tech <sighs> look look y'all some of y'all missed the whole damn message that our sister Kamala was trying to send and this is the thing the whole thing about shutting down Donald Trump's Twitter handle isn't that that's is equivocating that with breaking up Big Tech it's I, not no but I think she was doing that. Do we disagree on this? We disagree on this, actually. Okay. What she was sharing was an immediate action step that can be done before we go towards the big structural changes. Mm. Because the truth is, is that what Trump is doing to people of color and LGBTQ activists and other folks like this that are on the front lines, mm-hmm. trans activists, mm-hmm. is that it creates unfettered attacks on them. 
Mm-hmm. When real life violence happens, it's because of the kind of from the, the the kind of violence that's being legitimized by the president of the United States. Mm-hmm. And when you have Facebook and you have Twitter mm-hmm. saying it is not our responsibility to ensure that like the information on our systems is accurate, mm-hmm. that they don't have the same responsibility that if a newspaper right now decided to come out with and publish something, mm-hmm. there's some rules that they have to abide by, right. but yet they don't have to. You can actually literally just shut that man's stuff down. And it would at least allow us to like bring the conversation to the real space. And most importantly, stop the attacks that are happening to actual activists. Yeah. I'm not one of those folks. You know, I'm not a queer activist living in freaking, yeah. you know, somewhere in the South. Mm-hmm. Where someone then sends a video like that to me as a way to attack me when I'm walking down the street. And mm-hmm. I think that that's what people have to think, realize. Mm-hmm. People are still living their actual lives in real life. Mm-hmm. And what Donald Trump is being given is unfettered access of hate. And as someone that grew up in a family where all the adults in my family grew up in a dictatorship, Mm -hmm. you have to understand, I have a different lens on this stuff. Mm -hmm. We're allowing a propaganda machine to completely take over our airwaves. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And before we even bring, and why do you think Zuckerberg is doing what he's doing? That's for power. And because he's a piece of shit. That's interesting. I don't know that if we can't even shut down a person's account, you think they're going to they they've already bought government, but government's not going to break them up. I think I uh, I agree with you, but I also agree with myself. I think oh, I mean, like you should be in both places. You know, it's OK. To be it's in both just places. I'm straddling the line here. But I think for me, it's twofold. Right. It's like we were having this deep conversation about corruption and big tech and the ways that it needs to be um, broken up and all of that. Mm-hmm. And. I just felt like it was Kamala stepping into this moment to get her, like, her moment, her political moment, and really come up and cross-examine Elizabeth Warren. And, like, I welcome that opportunity, but do it on something that's more related to the question and also a little more substantial. That And I also feel that... I don't. I also have concerns, and I know that... I have concerns about banning an elected official from that platform. I don't. I'm worried about the, the free speech pieces of it. So it's okay to have... No, because it's hate so speech. It, I don't know. I'm conflicted. I mean, no. At the end of the... And that's a problem with... I mean, I mean I'm going to just go here. This is a problem with, with big idea Democrats. Yeah. Y'all don't know how to appreciate the action steps in before that. Yeah. It, to actually put some energy but, behind things. Because at the end of the day, you want to go always for the big things, poo-poo the small things, and guess what we get? Not a damn thing. But Kamala doesn't... doesn't doesn't aspire to the big things. All we get from her is the small pieces. But it's it's not for me. It is in the bigger context for me because at the end of the day, Kamala is a fading star in this in this primary battle. A what? She, uh, she's a fading star fading in this primary star. battle. She's mm-hmm. not going to emerge as a nominee. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So at this point, regardless of what her campaign is doing, she intellectually understands she's no longer winning this race. You think? Yes. Okay. She intellectually understands she's no longer winning this race. Yeah. So does Julian Castro. Yeah. Well, I think he deeply understands. Right? Yeah. So does Cory Booker. Yeah. All like, these folks understand. Yeah. They're performing for something else. And we have to remind ourselves of that. What that something else is. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. I don't know. Like, just... like for instance, like even like her response, like when Kamala brought up reproductive justice, mm-hmm. which, you know, I've been talking for the last several months. Like, mm-hmm. why hasn't this brought up yet? She didn't really give context about what's happening. No. She was just like, hey, let me tell you about reproductive justice. That's what I hated, too. I was just like, I was like, uh, it was kind of like, I remember the thing I read in my briefing memo. Yeah, exactly. I was told that this was important, and now I remember. Exactly. <laughs> but that's how I feel about her I whole campaign. I know. I know. And I know. also, a piece of it is like, 
it's and it comes back to how I feel like she approaches her record as a prosecutor too, where it's like, oh no no no, let me explain it to you. You don't understand, and it's like actually no, we do understand, and we want you to reckon with it. And if you reckon with it, maybe we can have a conversation. But don't explain to me what you did because it's bad. You know. Let and- me ask you something, just because I've been seeing coverage about this, yeah. and you know, honestly, I haven't thought about it my, myself either. But I want to throw the question out there, which is, you know, I've seen some coverage just talk, it just sort of from from some folks in the media that that Kamala. This is outside of the debate stage, mm-hmm. um, just to be to be clear, mm-hmm. um, that she she gets fielded questions that are either more are perceived to be harder, mm-hmm. right? And, like, that other candidates get more, like, softball kind of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've read it a few times, and I haven't paid enough attention to that particular lens, so I was just curious to see if that's something that yeah. that you think it's, like, a real... So there was an LGBTQ forum mm-hmm. a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the CNN one. Um, where the... Co- the, the, um, the common... Not the commentator where the moderator mm-hmm. came for her a little hard. Mm-hmm, I'm mm-hmm. not going to lie. Um, but I don't feel like she gets harder questions, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but I also am a white-ass woman, you know? And so I'm not here to comment on that. Like, if that is her experience and and that is her staff experience, like, I'm not going to take up that that yeah, challenge, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. Because I don't feel that way, and there are moments where I feel that the Kamala campaign mimics the Hillary campaign in some ways in the way that they approach their relationship with the media and calling things out. But also, like, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that the black woman in the field running for president mm-hmm. isn't having a more challenging time. Like, yeah. I'm not going to do that. No, and I appreciate you for, for saying that, you honestly. Know. I mean, look, I know you just mentioned Hillary and it makes me think of Madam. Look, Madam, Madam Hillary is out here still warning us of shit that's going down I'm mad at her though um, I mean we can always stay mad at her a little bit that's okay um, you know this part you know it's kind of your relationship with your mom I know. not your mom specifically oh but in God. general it's like that's moms. a really great analysis that's how I feel about yeah. like I'm like girl woman Thank I you love for your you service, but also shh but shh. but then she says some shit that you're like then comes through so it makes you want to pay attention I know so you know what she's, she's forecasting for the 2020 is it about Tulsi no, it's about third a third party candidate that's gonna that's gonna run, and they're gonna be popular in the in the states that um, that Trump needs to win. No, the, is it Tulsi? It's Tulsi. She thinks it's gonna be Tulsi. Which how much how much how much sense does that, that make? That makes a hundred percent sense. Like that hundred percent. I'm sorry, but Tulsi Gabbard is extremely dangerous. Extremely dangerous. The only thing I like about Tulsi Gabbard is her Stacey London white streak. Like, That's I, it. I just know that that woman scares me every time she speaks. Um, and I say that with respect to her, but... Um, but you got death in your face. Oh, uh, yeah. Also, she was out against gay marriage like like four years ago. So I just want to put that out there. It's not even like the Obama-Joe Biden sidestep situation. Oh, good old Joe. I know. Oh, let's talk about that motherfucker. Shall we? You know, I think everybody who listens to this podcast is going to share this sentiment, but I'm not going to stop talking about the fact that when Elizabeth Warren brought up the CFPB and he was like, I got you those votes, the temperature in my body like exploded. The temperature in the collective body of, of women and those and those that identify as women got really heated really quickly. Oh, my God. And he did the finger wave and the thing. And I just... Oh, it just made me so mad. And you know, and it's just like it's just it's 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 ridiculous. It's sexism. I mean, you know, the last the last debate, Julian Coster was like vilified for being too mean to to Uncle Joe, but you know, this debate, he does Uncle Joe does the same thing to to Senator Warren, right. and it's like, oh, um, that's fine. It's fine. 
I know. I mean, you know, media folks, like you make it too clear to who you support. You know, and this is what gives the ten the freaking extremists on the other side yeah. legitimacy to believe the crazy shit that they do. Right. It's so Because the up. optics of what you do pisses them off. Yeah. It just like it disappoints me, girl. but it but pisses also, them off. Joe Biden has been telling us who he is for decades, and like people need to stop I mean, pretending. The man has not won a race outside of the goddamn state of Delaware since 1970 something. That is correct. So why are we all sitting around here thinking that this man can win the president of the United States of America? And all and, uh, it just guys, he has not won a fucking. Camp I know. Out of the little state of Delaware. I know, girl. I know. I mean, I love to all the Delawareans out there. Very the beautiful rivers. You know, I've drive through it all the time. Very beautiful rivers. Honestly, I actually don't remember the last time I drove through it. Yeah, why were you? Yeah. No, I don't like driving. Nice bridges there. sometimes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's because Joe Biden reminds white men of their relevancy. And so does in Pete Buttigieg. In a time Buttigieg. of major transition in the world. Yeah. You know? And also fucking Mr. Conductor Joe spent a million dollars on a private jet. Do you know he only has nine million dollars cash on hand? Really? Yeah. Well, that's a great thing. Nine million dollars cash on hand. Their consultant and payroll is like three million dollars a month. Suck a dick. <laughs> For a yep. Presidential. Yeah, girl. Okay. Yeah, girl. They're Listen, the those Democratic establishment consultants ain't cheap. That's how they're lining their pockets in their billion-dollar industry and getting the same results that they've been getting for the last 40 years, which ain't shit. Ain't shit. Because it's not about that for them. <laughs> um, speaking of things that ain't shit, I don't know what Cl Amy Klobuchar was on at the debate, but actually, can you check me on this? I feel like, <laughs> I feel like when Amy kept calling Elizabeth Warren Elizabeth... There was some ah, that felt like a Girl, like a jab to me. That was some white women fucking hateration shit going on. What happened? Yo, all I know is that a woman of color, I was like, oh, 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 they're doing that white woman thing where they're pretending not to have a fight in front of you, but they are. They are. Yeah, no, they <laughs> super are. Because Elizabeth Warren was like visibly annoyed. And I'm gonna need both the Amy and the Elizabeth camps to do one thing before this next debate. Mm -hmm. Get a mole to see what the other person is fucking wearing because I need both of you to not I, wear the same colors anymore. I know, I know. Like literally, give a damn nineteen-year-olds like that's that's gonna be their one job. I know. On the day of the debate, they all text each other on the different Just, campaigns. Does Amy have people working for her? I though? don't know. I, I mean, I'm Sorry. sure she does. She? I need those two people to talk to each other, mm -hmm. and for the sake of like fashion mm -hmm. democracy, mm -hmm. please take care of it. Just you know who. But won look, at the end of the day, look, Amy raised a million dollars. 24 within 24 hours after the debate did she really oh yeah but she was such an asshole but this is the thing this is the fight that conservative democrats and, and independents want to see yeah. and when i say that folks i'm not talking about everyday folks that identify that i'm talking yeah. about people with money yeah 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 oh yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah listen we all know the crazy stories about amy klobuchar but i saw that mean boss who makes you eat a salad with a comb on that stage that night I really did. Look, both her and Pete knew what their strategy was. Look, at a time when it's clear that Biden has um, reached his plateau, mm -hmm. right? They're they want to get the Biden voters yeah. that that are now like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. It, you know, that's who they're aiming. That's exactly who they're looking for. Right. So the last thing that I'll say on this is on the gun violence question. I was really proud of Kamala Harris. I don't remember specifically what she said, but the urgency and humanity she brought to that answer was really powerful to me, and I just want to like raise that up and and celebrate it, even though I ride or die for. Warren. I do ride or die for Warren. And I think we saw a candidate who 
was battle tested on the debate mm-hmm. and really came through it. And then additionally, I will say that Julian Castro's response on police violence was really incredible and that he named Atiana Jefferson, mm-hmm. who was murdered in her home in Texas. Second murder by a Fort Worth, Texas police officer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just... In her home. Yeah. They called a safety check. Her neighbor called a safety check and they went in with a gun. And she had a gun because she thought somebody was in her house. And also it's fucking Texas and everybody has a gun. That's by design. And they shot her and killed her. Like it's so anyway, I was very glad and I'm very proud of the fact that he's been running a campaign that really brings those at the margin to the center of his narrative. Mm -hmm. Which unfortunately is why the media doesn't pay attention to him. Yep. Correct. That's okay. He's my vice president. I'm like, look, he'll be a great VP pick for any, a great running mate pick for for anyone. But let's uh, let's make it. You know, I'm gonna be honest, just to kind of like put a a bow on this debate conversation because I think it's you know what's important for for our listeners to remember here is that, you know, this is a slippery slope for Democrats. This is this is exactly you know, at this from this pivot on, mm-hmm. we either have a more honest conversation with the American people about where we are mm-hmm. and how these collection of ideas help restart that process again Mm -hmm. but if we don't do that we're going to be in a sad place Mm -hmm. because what's clear is that it does not matter anymore Mm -hmm. what trump will do his base will not leave him and those that are you know those that care about profit in this country don't care about the humanity of others Mm -hmm. and that's where we're at and that's where we're at folks which leads us perfectly into The dumpster fire. Shh, that's my sound of fire. So, All right, man. Uh, let's preface this dumpster fire with the fact that we're recording on October 18th. And between now and the couple of days it takes to edit, who fucking knows? I'm be honest. Who knows? And that's going to be our disclaimer every time. Yes. <laughs> yes. So kick us off, Wilmelia. Oh, man. So I did talk at the beginning about how we are in a place we have no checks and balances right now in mm-hmm. our country and where all the, the firewalls that should be in place just aren't there anymore. So good old listeners, have you heard? Well, first of all, G7. For those of you who don't know who the G7 is, they are the seven um, most profitable uh, countries, industrial countries in the world that come together to basically set the rules and standards for the rest of us. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that's who the G7 is. Mm-hmm. Um, Gina. Yeah. Where does the G7 usually host their meetings? Isn't it like Camp David or neutral places? Exactly. Yeah. Neutral government spaces, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. around the world, mm-hmm. usually in a host country right. of the G7. Right. Gina. Yeah. Where is it being hosted next year? On a Trump property in August in Florida. And I think the August piece is important because who the fuck wants to be in Florida in August, which means that there's a profit margin they need to make up for. Exactly. And they're going to use that. They're going to use the taxpayer dollars to fill that profit margin. Because this president is benefiting financially from his position of power, which, by the way, is illegal. And by the way, every foreign government at this point knows 
that the way to have negotiations with this administration is not to go to 1600 Pennsylvania no, Avenue. It's to go to 1100. So, Gina, mm-hmm. what's at 1100 Pennsylvania Avenue? I believe it is a Trump Tower. Yes. Is it a tower? It's an old post oh, office hotel. It's He's bullshit. really nice. I don't care. It's all phallic. Um, <laughs> I had my moment, guys. I mean, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> Men and their toys, boys and their toys. Yes. We're suck all around with it everywhere. Just um, everywhere. Guys, I mean... It's just, it's, it's pay for play. Yeah. It's pay for play, clear corruption. It's and they're insane. telling us that it's okay. Right. Because this is what they've always done. Right. And what Republicans have said that it's okay too. Right. No, they're totally bought they're in. They're totally bought in. And, and this Everybody's is, bought in, y'all. And Everybody. This is the bigger thing, man, is that like the Ukraine stuff, the taxes, all of the whistleblowers, there's so much corruption you sometimes don't even know where to look, right? But you know what happened yesterday? Mick Mulvaney basically went into the press room. Also, Mick Mulvaney's the chief of staff, which I totally forgot about until yesterday. Mick Mulvaney went into the briefing room and basically said, so what? Who cares? And Republicans are going to have their back on them. There is no smoking gun because we don't have a checks and balances system that can check the gun. And the way I like to describe it, guys, it's kind of like when shit hits the fan Mm. and everything's just splattered. All you see is just shit. Like you might see some parts that are bare, but it's all just shit. It's all poop. Yeah. It's all poop. Yeah. That's where we are, guys. It's poopy. It's poopy. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I gotta, I gotta laugh myself. That is that. our uh, formal academic assessment. <laughs> Everything is poopy, and it's true. The shit has hit the fan, and I all I see is shit at this point. And there's also, oh my god, that video about the journalist, the Trump murder video. Yeah, that was like a campaign video with violence against journalists. Like we. So for folks that didn't see it, it was about a minute and a half, Ugh. two minute video that went viral on Twitter and Facebook, unfortunately, because of course. Guess we can't censure violence in the cultivation of that. Yeah. But um, for two minutes, it's actually faces of journalists imposed on other human beings as Trump walks into a church, yeah. which is not ironic. No, it's not. Oh, excuse me, not ironic, but not a coincidence. Excuse me. Yes. And he just goes on on a shooting spree. Right. And I'm just like, what the fuck? In a church? Some Dylan Roof shit. I mean, guys. Julian Castro crossed the border this past week mm-hmm. and saw agents actually deny the legal, the actual rifle legal entry yeah. of folks coming in. Yeah. They know, they know they have more power. They know that whatever existed before mm-hmm. doesn't matter and they don't have to be held accountable to it. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, Will Nelia and I have had a lot of conversations about this like offline and um, I think that there's a lot and I, I felt this in some ways until I had to be processed through it. Like, there's a lot of feeling that it's like, well, we don't do this here. Like, what is this like? And it's actually it's actually no. Um, this country was founded on stealing land and profiting from people's bodies. Um, this is the structure our country was built on. And it was catalyzed even further by modernized capitalism that continues to put profit over people. And so we shouldn't be surprised at this point that we have a government that is putting profit over people and that and it begs the deeper question is that is that is that what we have become as americans it is and and i think the answer is yes the answer is yes the answer is purely yes i want to push back well i want to push back on the americans because Mm -hmm. i think there are people like you and i in this country Mm -hmm. who don't share that value Mm -hmm. but everything everything the light touches is like that 
our government, our business, our nonprofits, our like the way we interact with people in many spaces, even in justice spaces. Of course. The evilness of capitalism and the inhumanity in in folks is everywhere. And so I say that all to say, like, you know, we should be upset, but also don't be so naive to think that this is unique to even the last 10 years because it is the foundation of our country. Yep. And just so I can give credit where credit is due, Wilnelia really walked me through and did the emotional labor to get to that point. <laughs> I just think it's important. I just there was some work there, guys. There was, there some, was, work. There was some work. It was a there few, was. few months of work. But no, but look, the reason why this is important because we just spent thirty minutes talking about this debate and about the kind of pivot that mm-hmm. from a messaging perspective that the entire, you know, debate stage and the candidates that are in the Democratic side really need to take this moment seriously. Yeah. We need to stop tinkering with PR fucking messages. Yep. Because this is about the the people's it is, lives. Our lives. civil society civil does society. not exist. Right. People do not trust their institutions anymore. Right. Right. 100%. So we, you know, I and, don't. you know, and it's just it's 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 Oh, it's just, it's crazy to me. You know, it's all I can continue to say. It's absolutely crazy to me. And, you know, before we came into, um, before we came into recording the studio today, I was looking at some, I don't know why I did this, but I did, um, just looking at some videos from, from Trump and some of his pressers as it relates to the, his, uh, latest decision to, um, withdraw troops from, from the sort of, let's call it the, 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 the Kurd, the Kurd territory between Syria, Syria and Turkey. This man said sometime in a, in a campaign rally, actually, mm-hmm. it wasn't like a presser. Um, cause I actually don't listen to any of his presser related to the White House, but I do look at his campaign rally stuff because yeah. that's actually where you actually understand what he's doing in the White Who House. Who he is. Yeah. No, it's also how you understand what's going on in the White House. Yeah. So this is what he said about the situation. He's like, sometimes you just gotta, let the kids fight it out with each other, and then you come back in and separate them. No. Yes. That's so yucky. I mean, he also said, "Oh my god, oh. it's okay. They need to clean that place out. That means ethnic cleansing. Ethnic cleansing. I ethnic mean, that cleansing. is what we're... Th- and also by letting the kids fight it out and then thinking you're going to go back in there, it is feeding the military-industrial complex that all of his advisors live in and also like i did see on twitter the ethnic cleansing piece but don't sleep like he's been ethnic cleansing america for like three years now i mean from the moment he came off we kicked off we called mexicans rapists right so no and this is why we need to bring this up folks because at the end of the day like (laughs) a, 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 a a american citizen there was a journalist was killed by four, by his own government months ago, yeah. and this country looked the other way. Mm-hmm. Also, Erdogan's a fucking dictator. It's, a, it's uncharted territory, folks, and it's also why it's so important that we 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 don't forget about this big container, right? Um, because at the end of the day, if you're looking at this cycle as like who's your guy or who's your gal that's gonna like mm-hmm. you know make this happen, mm-hmm. no. Mm-mm. No. You know, this is... And it's about the infrastructure we have to build all the way down. It's about the training of the people in movement spaces, in electoral spaces, in nonprofit spaces, in all different kinds of spaces. It's understanding that we have to build an infrastructure of people who can implement the basically rebuilding of America. And if we're not making those investments, we're going to be here again. And we need to rethink our relationship fundamentally to money. Yeah, for sure. We just have to. For sure. Like, there's just no way around that. We fundamentally have to think about how do we store wealth in a way that actually creates collective prosperity? 
Jessica Bird is a political strategist focused on recruiting and electing people of color and working with women of color centered and led organizations on strategic political programming and self-sustainability. She is the founder of Three Point Strategies, a firm built for and by badass people of color that supports folks in the movement and those who run for office. Prior, she spent four years at EMILY's List, where she coordinated the national training program and worked with hundreds of new and seasoned candidates in the state and local program. Jessica designed and executed the first ever homegrown candidate recruitment program in the organization's 30-year history. Um, She worked with organizations that utilize community coalitions to recruit non-traditional candidates. She has spent the last decade creating pathways for activists and elected leaders to create change. I'm going to try to keep my cool here, but dear listeners, no, I am fangirling super hard. She really is, y'all. I wish you could see her. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we can give her a call. Yeah, yeah. Hello. Hi, Jessica. Hey there. Hey, man. How's it going? It's good. How are you doing? Good, good. This is Winelia. Oh, hello. I love your name. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I wish I sounded as beautiful saying it. It's so beautiful. All good. You know, (laughs) it's definitely one of those names growing up I hated. And then, you know, I'm glad I listened to my elders when they were like, you'll you'll love it eventually. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I know. And when you have a name like Jessica, you're like, you you, you covet the the beautiful (laughs) name. Oh, awesome. Well, we are going to get started. But first, thank you so much for taking the time I know you're taking some time off for yourself so I really appreciate you you know making time for us today oh thank you for asking me I'm excited to do it and glad that it this is today is actually my last my last day I get back to work on Monday so this is kind of a nice uh, good way to ease into it man good way to ease into it (laughs) exactly yeah so thank you both and I hope that you've been enjoying enjoying this process Oh, definitely. It's been really incredible. Yeah, 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 for sure. So my first question for you is, could you share your story of self with us? How did you come into mm-hmm. this work? I grew up in like a working poor neighborhood in Columbus, Ohio. My family was working poor. And the story that I always tell is that my mother was a poll worker. And she worked election day every year as a way to make extra money. And um, and so every election day morning, my dad would take you know me in one hand and some shea butter in the other, and would walk <laughs> me across the street to where my mom was you know signing in voters to vote. And uh, it was really this kind of incredible way to demystify politics because I would sit on my lap as she would do my hair and I would get to ask her questions about the process. And, you know, I think it also demonstrated to me that in all of these spaces that my people didn't treat my mom with respect, that when she started to talk about voting or, or politics, that they always really did. And I thought that that was just like a really interesting thing. And, and, and I'm not going to lie that I really wanted to follow that. I, re- I wanted to follow that respect and, and what felt like, you know, that power. Um, but, you know, I would say that I, I followed a pretty traditional route for like, you know, high school and, and college and um, didn't really understand an entryway into campaigns um, outside of really the Democratic Party. Like I didn't Mm -hmm. know how you got a job on a campaign. Um, And so I had this kind of formative training that now I've really, I think, had to spend a lot of time unlearning. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, it wasn't until, you know, 2014 and the murder of Mike Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, that I really started to think 
about campaigns as this very, very specific tactic. Um, I've always been, you know, a person that uh, has cared deeply about race, um, love being a black woman and wanted to champion black women is, is I'm queer. And so I have all, had all of these like politics around my identity, but it wasn't really until this incredible uprising of young black people that I started to think about my own contributions to a radical political movement. And that is how I started Three Point Strategies really as an offering of, um, of that particular tactic to what felt like really a, a, a revolution for black people across the country. Hmm. Wow. Wow. I mean, you you mentioned you mentioned um, you know three point strategies. Um, so, what's the what's the mission of three point strategies? Yeah. So, at three point strategies, we elect the boldest, baddest uh, black women, and we serve triple black B. Movement. I like that strategy. Hey, triple B. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> you know, in in learning about campaigns, I learned all of the really traditional tactics of how to write a campaign plan, you know, how to write a field plan, how to calculate my win number. But what I I had to learn on my own through my own identity and just falling in love with these incredible black women is that there are very specific um, barriers to getting elected as a black woman. And that all of these beautiful, brilliant, genius black women across the country wanted to lead and were falling into this black hole that was created by all of these structural barriers and were being prevented from that leadership. And so oftentimes when I talk about the fact that like literally all day long, all I do is try to elect black women, people often treat that as this like symbolic vanity project. Whereas um, three point strategies is a offering of the rigor that it actually Mm. takes to elect black women, the deep discipline and um, innovation that it takes to elect someone that so many people rely on but won't give the title or the power to. And so at Three Point Strategies, our work every day is to um, figure out how to get black women treated with the respect that they deserve, to ensure that they are able to run the campaigns that we believe that they deserve, and that black movement feels like uh, they have leadership that they can trust. And that bridge um, has been one that in every campaign changes, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. we are becoming really experts on that specific intersection. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, and that's incredible. Uh-huh. And you, you touched on this a little bit, but I just want to ask the question straight out. Why is it important for us to center black people and people of color in, in general in our electoral work? Um, I'm so glad that you asked it directly, um, <laughs> because I think we're at this really pivotal moment in political history where people really think and talk about um, black electoral politics in really conversational ways that feels good. We're in meetings and it's not, you know, totally out of uh, the usual to hear people talk about the importance of black women voters. Well, that's great. But um, do we really get what we mean when we say how important um, really centering black people and black women are in the fight for social justice? Um, Because um, we have a population of people at which the entire economy of the United States was built on their backs. Um, But in many ways that the history of this country, um, you know, 
post, um, right. you know, the Emancipation Proclamation right. has demonstrated that the government over and over again mm-hmm. has responded to the emancipation of black people mm-hmm. by um, creating and recreating its policy, its uh, its elections to specifically maintain a certain type of power that keep black people from living our fullest and most meaningful lives. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, even when thinking about uh, reconstruction and the period in in this country where we were grappling with what it meant for black people to be full citizens, we can we continuously saw this organizing of uh, white nationalists and um, and uh, people who wanted to answer that question by saying they don't deserve the full rights that um, that, that white citizens have. And I think we are continuously having hints at that mm. uh, in every generation. And the current one that we have now is really the backlash of um, of you know white nationalism against the election of President Obama, against the incredible organizing of black movement, um, and that to me, uh, when I think about then what that requires from us is to say, truly, if what so much of the nucleus of systemic oppression and injustice is, is around the uh, around black identity in this country, mm-hmm. then by centering black people, what we actually do is address the root Ugh. of the problem. Yeah. And in addressing the root of the problem, we can recreate and reimagine a world in which everyone else um, is free um, because the gospel choir singing in the back the here. But continue, oh <laughs> please. Um, that's just you know. Honestly, sorry for interrupting you, um, Jessica. It's just that you know, it's just amazing to, to hear you articulate what you just articulated. And my my follow up question, and it's in the same in the same lane. Um, you know, you you your last words were, we need to center our democracy and our politics on black people. What would you say to other communities of color about why that's important? And the reason I raise this, Jessica, is that I struggle with this all the time in the work, right? As a as a first generation Latina, you know, I often, you know, speak to a, a lot of people. And the first thing I tell them all the time is like the, our problems as Latinos is that we don't want to center our politics on black people. Right. Um, and obviously it's mm-hmm. coming from a, from my own personal and professional experience, but um, I'm curious to hear your perspective on that, right? Because a lot of times yeah. the conversation is about talking to, you know, there's an assumption that we're just talking to white people, right? Mm-hmm. But the reality okay. is, is that for the intersectionality that you're talking about to really be leveraged, we need other communities of color to understand that, like, we need to center our politics on black folks. Um, so okay. can you just speak a little bit more to sort of why that's important? Absolutely. Oh gosh, I, I love this question, and and I just it just makes me think that like the greatest lie that white supremacy ever told was that there was a scarcity of resources or a scarcity of people that would be willing to fight for you know for for their communities. Um, in fact, an, an abundance of resources uh, for us to be together and to do really deep multiracial organizing. Um, but what what it what does at time feel scarce is the opportunity to really spend that time together without centering white people in that conversation. And, and so, you know, I, I, I would want to take, I want to take this answer in kind of two parts. Yes, please do. So one, one is, I think that there is an incredible, 
incredible, an incredible uh, call to action for there to be deep multiracial solidarity of, of people of color and, and, and poor people across the country. And I think that that is some of the hardest to because in the face of day-to-day kind of oppression, we're consistently looking for opportunities to feel like um, we are getting ahead. And, and oftentimes what that does, and I think the lie of white supremacy, is to then pit us around the people who are running the same race that we are and not the people who constructed this really faulty, fucked up, uh, fucked up, you know, race and competition. And so what we end up doing is looking around and nitpicking on very specific, you know, differences or requests or lifestyles when really what we're talking about is like a very specific structure that we're all locked into. Mm -hmm. And so I actually think um, we need to take so much of that work offline. We need to get in deep community with each other, lock ourselves in rooms, make commitments, not that are based just on election cycles or based on on specific numbers, but actually on understanding um, not only what's holding us back, but like what a collective vision of a world that really can hold all of us, like what that would look like. And I've seen I- incredible versions of that. You know, the, um, the movement for black lives participates in what's called the majority. I know that um, Mi Gente and the movement for black lives has spent, has spent a lot of kind of multi, like, um, you know, deep organizing time together. I know there are many other formations and united fronts that I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting in this in this moment. But I think that that work is happening. It's just, it's not sexy. It's really hard. It's slow. But it's actually the work that, that generates us the most outcome. And then one thing I'll say before I, I, I stop is that I also think that all of that like family work that we have to do mm. to get outside of ourselves, we, we should do together. Mm. I do think that black people need autonomous spaces. I do mm-hmm. think um, that uh, Latinx folks should should be have autonomous spaces. Mm-hmm. I do deeply think that, you know, Southeast Asians should have autonomous <laughs> yes. uh, spaces, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason is because we've spent so much time believing that access and having a seat at the table is the measurement of success that we haven't defined what we want our table to look like and what our collective vision is together. And I think that that type of rigor is when then we get really good at like fucking up their table. And, what the fuck and I'm talking about, sis. That works for everyone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I always like to say one of the things I, I, I share with, um, with, with Gina all the time. It's like, you know. For all this talk about getting a seat at the table, I feel that my generation and those of us that are doing this work, whether we, we do it formally or informally, or whether you're the, the, the badass like grandma on the block that knows everybody, mm-hmm. right? Um, to me, we're all in the same ecosystem yeah. together. Absolutely. It's about making and I think we table. saw a glimpse of like the quote unquote table with the, uh, you know, Speaker Pelosi versus yeah. uh, President Trump <laughs> picks this week. And I think that like, you know, I, the Ugh. amount of us who would actually raise our hand to want to be at that specific table are so few. So mm-hmm. if that's true, then what are we actually saying we want our leadership to look like? And I think that's part of the question, or that's part of the answer that Three French Strategies is offering. Yeah, man, you're building tables, sis. That's mm-hmm. what it comes down to, man. <laughs> no, we, we know how to build them. You know, we can, you know, look, I always yeah. say, Shirley is a, you know, uh, you know, Shirley Chisholm is obviously a, um, 
someone that I've always admired very deeply personally, right? Um, but a lot of times her, you know, her her quotes, her history gets trivialized in a way that keeps us stuck, honestly, because mm-hmm. here we have someone as amazing as you that's actually doing this work of building tables, but yet there's a larger narrative that says, well, I'm just okay with pulling up a seat at the cha- at, the, at the table. Because mm-hmm. yeah, no, you know what it looks right. like? It looks like one woman in a room yeah. full of white guys, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right. defending herself because yeah. no one else is willing to. <laughs> right. Yeah, and, and can we allow on this really quick because yeah, I just I, yeah. it seems this is actually something I've been like really reflecting on um, recently which is like you know I've been I've been really watching some of my peers and just folks I really respect in presidential campaigns that I, I don't in presidential campaigns with candidates that I don't super respect mm-hmm. and yeah. um, and I've been thinking about that that like um, maybe dichotomy is the word, but like thinking about that tension is what is what I'm really looking for. Um, so many of us trying to find what our best and highest use is mm-hmm. in this clinical moment. And I just think for folks who are listening, who are, who are searching for that is that balance of your values versus like what your particular best and highest use is, is part of the answer. And if you're in currently in an organization or maybe working in a campaign in which you feel like there's like a compromise of some of that, or maybe you're at a table where you feel like access is the only thing you can have right now is like, don't be dismayed by that. Figure out how you can leave that room and, and tell everyone what happened in there so that they can navigate um, they're building their own things based on the lessons that you learn and the discomfort that you, that came from it. Like the best advice as I was coming out of Emily's list and deeply, deeply into black movement was put down the guilt of what you had to do to get to us and tell us everything that you know. And I want just everyone to consider themselves like on assignment for us figuring out how to recreate what doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Mm. Wow, Jessica. Your turn, Gina. I, you have Gina over here excuse me, staring I need a at minute. the corner of the table, Jessica, just like I, I just reevaluating like her whole oh life. Goodness. Like, so no, what is my assignment? No, but it's, but no, well, no, I know what it I'll, is. I'll but I, I, I was going to say, I'll fuck you with her. I definitely know. No, but it's funny that we you talk about that because I actually, I've been having sort of these ongoing conversations with people in my life because as you know Jessica like I come from the Democratic Party right like I worked at Emily's List I worked for Ted Strickland like the whole shebang and like people listen to the podcast and like come up to my partner and they're like I can't believe she's like trash talking the D trip blah 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 and it is this internal struggle for me because part of me is like I am mad that you're making that choice to spend your time in that way. But at the same time, like, Jessica, you're totally right. Like, we need to hold those people and understand that they're on their journey and that, like, I want the receipts. So when we build the revolution, it's it's awesome. Right. Yeah. So thank That's you. Right. Thank you for sharing that. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Thank that... you for saying that. And I it's a really painful thing to to have to unlearn. But I also think, like, mm. that's part of you know, like that's part of it. I know so much more about how to dismantle it now that I've been inside of it. Exactly. And I think that we, some of us will have, have never had to make that compromise and, exactly. and good for those of us who got to always be mm-hmm. in movement and get mm-hmm. paid to do it. But mm-hmm. for those of us who were just looking for a way to, mm-hmm. you know, like this was our path. And so now we got to make the most of, of how we can right. contribute and serve. Yeah. Right. Totally. Um, well, 
back to my written down questions that aren't <laughs> quite as philosophically revolutionary for me. But um, I, I do want to bring it back to you, Jessica, as a person, because you have been basically in the room for some of the most important political, electoral and movement moments our country has had in the last t- decade or two. So I want to hear about, you know, your time working for Stacy. You know, it's a belief in this family that y'all won and it was stolen. <laughs> um, that's how we think about that election down there. But I would just love to hear about, you know, your role on that campaign and what it was like and how you guys mobilized all those incredible people. Yeah, I'm, it's funny. I'm actually on my way to meet her now. I'm in a, I'm in a, a lift on my way to meet her oh now. Oh, my God. And, yes. um, I will say, like, our... Um, as the anniversary of last November comes, I was like, I actually feel like any anniversary, any big anniversary is like, I'm just like in this really deeply reflective mode about how I felt at this time last year. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I appreciate you saying that we won. And, and I think for me, I've spent most of 2019 grappling with the fact that we we didn't get to govern and what that means um, and what that means for the work um, and why that lesson had to be through this race and and at this time. Mm -hmm. And I don't have like super easy answers. answers. They're definitely not concise, so I won't give all of them, but I will say that they lie in what we, what we built. um, And which is, which is what you started the question with. So, so one thing is like when I met Stacey, it was, I think 2011, maybe yeah, 2011. And it was very clear to me, even at the time, that what she intended to do was to be in her best and highest use for the state of Georgia. And I actually think like, to the conversation that we're having is like, I could tell, I could tell the energy Mm -hmm. of her, I could tell her vision, her innovation, that she actually wasn't fixated on this perfect outcome what she was fixated on was like the journey that it was possible to transform the state that it was possible to include as many people in the conversation and so I in kind of committing to her even on those early days when I wasn't sure it was going to happen now that I look back I'm like wow I'm so glad that like that that her just becoming powerful wasn't the thing that it actually was truly about 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 transformation and so you know part of what we did is worked really really quietly when people weren't looking Mm -hmm. and so I actually have now have at three point strategies I'll get on a consulting call with a new candidate and they will ask me for like the Stacey effect and I I kind of chuckle because I'm like (laughs) I know I hate that freaking question I bet you all get that uh, (laughs) yeah Um, what's the Ayana package could you just give me working hard for a long time yeah Exactly. And I think like, I just can't say it enough. And I even like to be reminded of it for myself, which is like, it really is the quiet work that prepares you for when people finally can hear what you have to say, and then really taking the opportunity to just fucking slam dunk it. And that's what we did. So one thing that we did was we um, ensured that there was an organizing program early, that it was well-funded, and that even as all the naysayers said that we shouldn't be spending money on that, that we doubled down on it. Two is we had nearly an entirely women of color senior leadership team. Um, there were in the core executive team, um, I, I was the deputy campaign manager and chief of staff, but our campaign manager, um, the you know the uh, head of our field program, et cetera, all women, um, that we actually had a vision and, and we had a, a budget um, for um, you know hiring the best and the brightest 
from from places that maybe traditionally hadn't been hired from. And then the the the, the next thing too is that like we truly ran unapologetically based on Stacey's values. And the way that we led our meetings internally in the staff were continuously questioning whether we were doing something because it was the most comfortable thing or whether we were doing it because we truly, truly um, felt like we could go to sleep at night. And I will say, like, saying that sounds way fluffier than when you're in it. Oh, yeah. girl, we know we understand. You all both know this, right? <laughs> it's like... Like, there were very real threats on Stacey's life. There mm-hmm. were very real mm-hmm. straight threats on our staff's life. Mm-hmm. There were very real um, um, threats and risk to our strategy and losing momentum. And we knew that the opposition knew that and wanted to use that to scare us back from our values. And so every moment that we had, even if, you know, we knew that literally armed protesters would follow us to our cars we still felt like we had enough um you know of a consensus around why we were running who we were doing it for and what was possible and what the reason why even that kind of context of even that fortification was is that that night when we were in the war room and we were clear that there had been widespread election fuckery is no one flinched (laughs) There was not a flinch. Nobody, there wasn't a cough. There wasn't a tear. There wasn't a scared. We knew what we had to do. We knew that Stacey believed deeply that there would be no concession until there was a fight. And so that was actually one of the most incredible experiences in my life to wake up the next day and to know that this that huge team that blanketed the entire state would stay in the fight because they always knew what it was about. And I feel most proudly of having worked to build that with her. Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, I just want to just say, you know, first of all, it's just so powerful, right? Because, you know, the reason why this podcast exists is so that we can get the real stories out, right? right. Um, because, you know, the conventional Democratic Party and some of the conventional sort of mainstream organizations continue to talk about what happened in Georgia if it was just like a, a marginal foot, a marginal right. footnote, right? Um, and the reality is, is or that, as if it was this thing that they believed in the whole time, and I assure girl, you, didn't believe that it was none not. of them were there. <laughs> we know, right? Um, but not, but listen, look. At the end of the day, like one of the things I try to stress all the time in this work is that. At this point, if we really want, if we really are about what we say we're going to do, we can't define wins and losses the way that it's traditionally been been defined. And why do I say that in context of what you just shared with us, Jessica? Because the truth is, is that you guys did succeed in transforming democracy in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Right. I believe that. Yeah, I, I, that's you know, true. And that infrastructure continues and it's alive mm-hmm. and it was built Absolutely. years leading up to it over, you know, almost, you know, 15, 17 years of work. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. that infrastructure can't be replaced. It's only going to be doubled down on. Mm-hmm. Right. So and and I want to lift that up. Right. Because I think when we again, when you hear the traditional conventional story, you won't hear folks what Jessica just shared. Right. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, transformation can't be measured the way that capital wants us to correct and the way that white supremacy mm. wants us to because right. if we use their algorithm they're going to tell us that we're losers right that we that's shouldn't right. that we but shouldn't you know, lead 
<laughs> yes, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And I, and I like accept it. I receive, I, I definitely receive what you're saying. And mm-hmm. I, I received that so many people, like hundreds of people everywhere I went. Mm-hmm. Every, I know everywhere Stacy goes, everywhere all of our staff goes, says that. And, and so I, I don't, like yes, I agree, and I and I want people to feel that way. Mm-hmm. One of the things, as though as a practitioner though of elections, someone mm-hmm. who's like I'm just trying, I'm like kind of feel like I'm in my grad school PhD <laughs> process of being Ooh. like, what did I learn? Yeah. What did I learn? What did I learn? And and what I for anyone who's listening who is in campaigns or at least wants it to be their expertise, their mastery, which is what which is what I want it to be for me for Black women, is what do you do when your opponent is not your individual opponent? It is the legacy of white supremacy. What is the truth of your strategy? What is the truth of your job? And I think that getting to that through, like, honestly, the depths of despair, of of feeling like I had worked four years to do the best thing I ever, ever uh, felt like I had done and that I was going to return that victory to my family, return it to uh, the, the state of Georgia that I had fallen in love with, return it to this country, give it to a legacy of black women's leadership and that I didn't and then there was this bigger question which was like well that wasn't what you were answering you were answering what do you do when your opponent isn't just Brian Kemp that's all that he inherited that intricately designed the strategy that you were fighting against and and now in I'm just way stronger in answering that which is that we have so much to undo and to build around um, people's entry into our democracy. And in fact, you know, shout out to y'all's name is if we want deep, deep democracy, then we have to be deeply rigorous about what we're actually fighting against. And I don't want to oversimplify what you all did down there, but you basically, the Stacey Abrams campaign gave us an electoral roadmap for taking on white supremacy. And you did it with such grace and such strength. And it was just, it was incredible to watch. And thank you for breaking it down like that. It just, I feel very grateful to to have heard your your side of that. That's amazing. And, thank you. And, and just shout out to anyone listening who was involved, because I definitely yes. did not do it alone. Definitely. And like our campaign manager, Lauren Grawargo, is, yes. is, yes. was an actual genius, is an actual genius, <laughs> someone who just, I fell so in love with. Um, her brain and her partnership and and the entire hundreds of, of people mm-hmm. uh, who who worked on it. So just mm-hmm. big and ups to everybody. Is Lauren is Lauren at Fair Fight now, or what what are they up to? Yeah, she's the CEO of Fair Fight. Hell yeah! And um, yes, and they are for you know go to Fair Fight Georgia uh, or I think it's fairfight.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm a five dollar um, a month monthly donor. <laughs> yes, I mean they are truly doing. The organizing that you wish could happen post an election where usually there's this extraction and then you leave and then you either, you know, go with your tail between your legs or you get to govern. Well, they have doubled down on their organizing and I couldn't be more proud of what Fair Fight has Mm -hmm. built and like continue to tell the stories of Georgians who want to be able to participate in their state democracy. Hmm. That's Mm -hmm. awesome. Mm -hmm. That's so awesome. I'm telling you. You know, one question I have for you in the con, you know, especially since, you know, first of all, I love how you not, you know, it's one thing to shout out the people you work with. Right. But it's another to actually um, to actually say that the, you know, part of the algorithm for what you that allowed you guys to do what you did was that deep solidarity was that deep collaboration. Um, what do you think it's really going to, you know, I don't want to say what it's going to take. That's actually not the way I want to ask this. Um, but 
what how do we push that culture for how we want to run different kinds of campaigns run different kinds of organizations organizations that have core values not just of love but understand how to operationalize that right mm. and understand what it means to build healthy organizations but not just healthy organizations for the sake of it because that's actually what black women and what people of color need to be able to lead right mm. so i'm just curious yeah. to just hear from you because at the end of the day you're you know you're not just an electoral person right you're like you're a movement person yeah. you're a systems thinker right um and ultimately that's something you know one of the big things that i've come to to a realization over the many years of electoral work is that we think that elections are going to change culture mm. but they often don't mm. mm-hmm. right that's right but the and, truth that culture changes elections right oh, girl sure. <laughs> yes. so yes. i'm just I'm curious that's like that's really good. what are your thoughts on that right like how do we because i do believe that the work that you're doing and the work that folks like you and, and, and us here are doing is to do that but what do you think is our next what's our next thing Right. Mm. Whether it's within Mm. like, you know, election space or what have you. Right. Um, But and and, and again, it's just like thinking big, big picture here. Right. But I just love to hear what you what you have to say on that. Sure. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I mean, this has been such an important uh, learning for me. I think managing is so much more than people understand it to be and 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 i would say that most of the people who are doing the most rigorous democracy and elections work right now are people whose names you do not know about Mm -hmm. but who are the ones who are leading every meeting Mm -hmm. who are holding people's hands trying to get them you know um supporter housing trying to figure out how to pay everyone like those are the, the heroes it's not usually the like perfectly theoretical you know leadership that we always get to to the visible leadership that we get to see and so you know i would say actually the most humbling part is that i actually do on every campaign that i work on or at least you know the ones that i take on full time you know i manage and so i manage staff i manage a budget i manage um you know the hiring and the firing and all the unsexy stuff that i would say um when you get down to the nitty gritty of it, like people don't like and where you actually get vilified the most. Um, and, and what I would say about that is that every turn I've had to think about the North Star and then actually the building blocks. It's not enough just to think about the North Star. It's also just being like, and how do I make sure that like everyone gets to stay on the journey with us and that we don't lose anyone or lose ourselves or lose the value that we have. And so a couple of ways to do that. One is like, um, having a lot, having an accountability process in the beginning. So both mm-hmm. at three point strategies, but also when I um, was working on the Abrams campaign and, and most of the last five years of just managing these operations is um, really thinking about what it means to to hold people accountable um, and to being honest about that. Um, I would also say um, a deep, deep gratitude. So having a culture that thanks each other, that makes plain what it takes, does not lie about what it takes to get something done and tries to um, pay people fairly enough that they can take care of their families while doing really hard work. And so so that's one thing. And then I would say, you know, another part of it, too, is... um, upending the idea of what's supposed to happen and getting to what is actually needed. So when um, my first political job, when I was 17, when I was 18, actually, um, I was working for a a state house member in Ohio. And after I left that, that, that year that I spent with her, she was like, you know, Jessica, like, you are so good at at this thing. Like you kept all the balls running, you did everything I asked you to do, but I'm not going to lie. You are just so nice. 
and I I just wonder if you should be like a social worker. Girl, I'm sorry. And you know what stayed with me about that? It actually at the time I was I was I was so young that I I really did think about it. I'm like wait what is she saying is required in politics, right? And I'm not going to lie, like, I still get that. Like, people really are confused about my demeanor. They think I'm too nice. Like, there's someone who's listening right now who's been in a meeting with me, like, eh, she is just, like, really kind. Um, And I just don't get it. And the truth is that I had to learn about all of the power in kindness and in treating people well that I have I've I've fired I've fired people, lots of people unfortunately, um, because campaigns really is about very fast and specific results. So sometimes not everyone fits. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also about personalities. So it's about putting together a team that can work really well together and sometimes that doesn't fit. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also, you know, helped to build a lot of things, I manage a lot of different types of people and the truth, the through line in actually what made it work wasn't just that I could like I was a good thinker I was so smart or so powerful it was actually that I I step back and listen and I really care about process does this meeting actually meet the needs of what we're trying to do is it being facilitated do do we have outcomes does it start at a time where actually everyone can make the time Um, you know does this team have a budget to do the thing we want Um, If we're saying we need to up this one specific fundraising goal, then how have we ensured that there is space for et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's actually being a process-oriented person and actually trying to see people holistically that has really helped me to build massive kind of some of the massive operations that we have. I'm not going to say I don't have shortcomings. Like I definitely, I definitely do, but I will say like finding that, um, balance has been the thing that is, has really helped me. And I, and I wish I could go back to the 18 year old version of me to say, like, if you try to emulate this like white male power that so many of us are told to emulate in politics, mm. you'll, you're going to lose more. And, um, and I've actually won way more than some of my counterparts who try to perform power because I actually just care about treating people well. Well, folks, you just got probably the best damn advice. Yeah. Um, and you didn't have to pay for it. Um, yeah. I'm just going to be honest. That's uh, top tier management consulting advice. Yeah. You're and, welcome. And uh, personal life. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> so we just have a few minutes here and we have two questions that we ask everybody at the end of our, our interviews. And so my question is, how do you care for yourself? And not just in the cons- like the self-care capitalized way, like what? do you do to feed yourself and like nourish your soul in times that are really challenging? Mm-hmm. I love this. Well, and I also, as you all know, I'm coming off of a little bit of a wellness sabbatical. Mm-hmm. I had mm-hmm. surgery um, four weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after the 2018 election, um, not only did I just feel depleted and I knew my cup was empty, mm-hmm. but I also didn't feel well. And I had been ignoring what the well part of it was. Like I was just kept, yeah, I'm like, if I drink kombucha and, and, you know, this green juice three times a week and go to yoga, that, like, maybe this weird pain that I'm experiencing yeah. I will go away. And mm-hmm. the truth was I actually needed to take it as seriously as my job. And so, like, I, like, did mm-hmm. research for myself and found doctors for myself that treated me with respect. And for anyone listening who has big kind of wellness questions and you're only at the part where you're just Googling them, I just think I encourage you to make that as 
big as you do some of your other things. And then I will also say I, have, I just have a, I have a, a probably a smaller personal life than it may even seem, which is that, like, I really have people in my corner who know me deeply. So best friend, uh, Geneva, who has really for the last 10 years been just like a source of humility and like continued like love and care and investing in our friendship has been a really part of me just saying who I am. I have a girlfriend who I actually met in, uh, in Atlanta while I was on the campaign who um, is not in my work. And so we like our relationship is just like straight up like joy and personal goodness for me. And then I would also say too like I'm a I'm just a crazy journaler so Mm -hmm. I carry my journal with me everywhere I write down everything when I read back on it some some of it sounds like very like eloquent and great and some of it is like actually just insanity and I think part of what I've learned about journaling is around how to train my inner voice to treat me well um that we just have so many messages from like childhood and bad bosses from the mean ass friend who never should have let in our life and they that starts to be our inner voice and Mm -hmm. what I've had to do especially because like I grew up in poverty both of my parents passed away I'm I'm mostly creating you know my adult future on my own um Mm -hmm. that I actually need an inner voice who's like my super cheerleader and so journaling really helps me get to a place where I can be like why are you talking shit you know and like but I really, I, I've had to train my inner voice and journaling really helps me with that. That is the piece about inner voice and journaling. That is yet another Jessica Bird truth bomb. So thank you. That was a thank you. So so deeply, it's deeply appreciated. Um, And our our last question that you know that we want to share with you is, um, what's your personal call to joy and justice? I have gotten to this place of uh, clarity just for myself, and especially as daunting as like the last four years have been where like you kind of just wake up with a heaviness you know that like there's going to be some fuckery like you just it almost feels like there's a dark cloud over so much of our work um but it's like i've gotten really clear that like feminism and all of the deliciousness that comes with it is like my actual birthright that like i'm claiming i'm claiming something that is already mine and that is being kept from me and so I feel just like on the days that I feel really heavy and I'm like dancing around and I've had this awesome call with a candidate who I know loves her community so deeply and I almost feel guilty that I've had this incredible experience and then I remember that like actually this is my birthright that's the the connectedness that I feel in movement the connectedness that I feel with black women the um, incredible like hope that I feel um, based on what I know is possible that we can all build together. Like that actually is what I deserve. And I've, I've earned that already because I'm alive. <laughs> and when you're alive, you get to, um, your, your birthright is that you get to live a full and meaningful life. And so I think that for me has been the call to, despite how big and daunting our task is ahead, is to feel like I'm actually just going to claim something that is already mine. God damn. God damn. 
Y'all are so funny, and I definitely want oh to uh, <laughs> want to bottle up your responses so that when I'm in meetings, I can just pull it you out. Just and be like, actually, they thought this was really impressive. I mean, look, you can like once the episode comes out, you can take snippets from yep. it and then just have just it like it. display them for yourself. Um, exactly. But you know, honestly, I just really want to you know thank you for for bringing your full self. I mean, I, I know that that's who you are as a person, but like you know, these kinds of questions sometimes people can yeah. you can go really left or you can like not really answer them. Um, but it's clear that like reflection is a deep part of who you are and your and your practice as a as a as a human. Yeah. Um so I just really want to thank you, sister, for all the work that you do um and that you continue to do. And and know that that call to join justice I think is one that other people should be joining with you. So but thank you. Yes. Yes. Well thank you all both so much for everything that you've done and everything that you continue to do and and I appreciate the affirmation. As I mentioned, this is like my last day of recovery. So yeah. I'm going to get back in the in the crazy world on Monday. And it feels good to have actually said some things that I think are going to motivate me once I get back yes. to my desk. This is really aggressive, but I'm just going to say it. Your presentation at Emily's List in 2017 was like the first moment after Hillary lost that I felt hope again. So I want to thank you for inspiring oh, wow. me. And like, I wouldn't have gone to Ayana if it weren't for the way you sort of turned my brain that day. And like a lot of the movement work I've had the privilege of doing, like, thank you for helping be a catalyst to that. And I just like wow. here to support you no matter what. So thank, thank you. you. And that I there probably isn't good language just to say how deeply um, that affects me. And I, I appreciate that so much. And it was it was hard to go back to, to feel like yeah. what I had left for was really worth it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so I really thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. Yeah, of course. Well, we'll have a good one. Have a good one. Um, and, send our love, and send our love to the governor. Yeah. She's still the governor. Yeah. Tell Governor Abrams we say hello. I will. Much, much love. All right. Thanks, Take Jessica. Care. Bye. Okay. Bye. That's it for this month. Don't forget to subscribe to Deep Democracy on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen so you won't miss our next episode. Deep Democracy is produced and distributed by Critical Frequency. Our producer, Amy Westervelt. Our theme song is We Can't Slow Down by Origami Pigeon. Our cover art was drawn by Alejandra Ballesteros. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Oh.